Hello and welcome to Falmouth Vineyard's audio podcast. We're really grateful that you're joining us today. Our vision is to see Cornwall coming alive through the hope and freedom that Jesus brings. To find out more about who we are or how to connect with us, visit falmouthvineyard.org. We'd love to hear from you. We are going to be carrying on our series in Philippians, so you might want to grab your Bible and turn to that book. It's at the back, New Testament section. It's a letter written by Paul. Um, last week, we looked at the fact that we are works in progress, that God would bring this work in us, his heart surgery to completion. And if you missed it, you can always catch up on the YouTube channel or on our podcast. Just go to our website and you'll find that, or just Google Falmouth Vineyard. And it should pop up by the wonders of Google. Um, This is a sermon series. These are not one-offs, although they can be treated as one-offs. So I would recommend, if you can, catching up if you miss a week. And again, if you haven't read the whole book of Philippians recently, it's only four chapters long. Um, Of all of the scrolling and reading and commenting you do this week, why not make reading the book of Philippians a priority rather than scrolling endlessly through Instagram. I'm talking to myself. The church, and I'm not going to get distracted. Um, I have been mulling this passage this week. It's one of those bits of the Bible that when you look up commentaries and other sermons, um, they all seem to pick up on slightly different things. And that's not because they all disagree on what it what is going on in this passage, what Paul is trying to say. It's not because it's contentious. It means there's so much going on in this passage. and There's so many things that could be turned into a sermon. So I had to restrict it down. You'll see what we're going to talk about. Um, On Wednesday this week, Esther, give us a wave, Esther, and me, went to the church search at the CU. It was Wednesday, wasn't it? Yeah. Wait. Was anyone there? Yeah. Yeah, there they are. Oh, yeah. At least five of you. Um, and we went to the CU church search, which is kind of like speed dating for churches and freshers, which is weird, uh, but it actually worked really well. We got to, in, it felt like we were, were interviewed about by about 25 students. They sat in front of us there on them side of the table and us, me and Esther here, and then they talked. And actually they didn't really talk. We just talked to them about what the church was like. And I basically just said, well, you should come along because it's really hard to explain what church is like. You might as well just come and see what it's like. So apparently I broke the rules because I took some sweeties and some lollies for everyone. I can't help that this church is welcoming and generous and extravagantly generous. Uh, so I'm absolutely not sorry about that whatsoever. And if you come to the student welcome lunch after the service, then you are going to be blown away by the cupcakes. I have seen a picture of them, and if they taste anywhere near as good as they look, then we are all in for a treat, and everyone's going to pretend to be a student next time. So I'm guessing there'll be lots of tagging on Instagram for our Falmouth Vineyard cupcakes. Thank you, Marguerite. Amazing, amazing, amazing. It makes me think we should have just gone for puddings, and I would have been very happy, as I always am. Uh, So anyway, Esther and I were at the church search. It's like speed dating, as I said, for students and churches. Esther and I sat behind the table loaded with sweets and lollies, and it felt like we were interviewed by all the new first-year students. Number one question, I think, was, what is the worship like? 
That is true, isn't it? What is the worship like? So we tried to discuss that. And they asked us about the size of the church, the location of the church, whether it was easier to walk here, whether we have any events for students to come to, things like that. I directed most of the Sundays page, and there's a cheeky little video on there. If you go to our Sundays page, where you can see what it's like to be in the room. Probably had about 25, 30 freshers there we spoke to. Um, no one asked. It's really interesting. I think it's fascinating what questions people ask, what questions people don't ask. No one asked about how we serve the poor in the region, in the area, which I thought was interesting. No one asked about what discipleship looked like in the life of the church, which I also thought was interesting. One student asked what we did in terms of outreach, which I think is interesting as well. I thought the whole thing was really fascinating. So keep that in your mind as we turn to the first chapter in Philippians. We're going to start reading in verse 12. It should come up on the screen. The sermon today is called, what did I call it then? What was the last one say? The most important thing. I wrote that last night and I was like, I can't remember what I called it. Anyway, the most, the most important thing. I should have remembered that. If you haven't got a Bible, feel free to grab one on the welcome desk. It says this, verse 12. Now, this is Paul writing, in prison. I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I, Paul, rejoice. Isn't that a fascinating passage? It is fascinating. This is Paul writing in prison. And there's a bit of debate among the scholars whether he's in Caesarea or whether he's in Rome. But the fact is, he is in chains. That's what he says. In prison, held against his will. And he is effectively celebrating, because he is in prison... He has been able to tell everyone there about Jesus. Not only him, but Paul's band of followers have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and more fearlessly than before. This persecution, this discomfort has been an opportunity for the gospel to be shared more courageously than before. And you might sit there thinking, well, I'm so glad that doesn't happen anymore. Well, according to the charity Open Doors, which aims to support Christians who are risking their lives to follow Jesus, according to them, go to their website, opendoorsuk.org. According to them, uh, today there are more than 360 million Christians suffering high levels of persecution and discrimination for their faith. In 2023 worldwide, one in seven Christians now experience high, what they would call high levels of persecution or discrimination. For an example, if you are a Christian discovered in North Korea, you can be expected to be arrested, sent to labor camps, tortured, and even executed. Of the, this is interesting. If in the, of the 5,621 Christians killed for their faith during the reporting period for the Open Doors watch, World Watch List 2023, out of 5,621, 5,014, or 89%, were killed in Nigeria. Did you know that it's estimated that there are over 96.7 million Christians in China? About 7% of the population, according to Open Doors. 
But China has the most oppressive and sophisticated surveillance used by the authorities in the world to keep tabs on Christians. Christians are put under intense pressure as the leading Communist Party seeks to limit any threats to their power. I absolutely recommend you go to opendoorsuk.org for more details and to read up on this stuff that's happening around the world for up-to-date stories. As I was saying, Paul's in prison. He's persecuted. He has an opportunity, but it's an opportunity for him to share the gospel in prison. But also it seems to have fired up his friends to, more, to, to share more of Jesus as well. But there is another fascinating line that Paul uses, which kind of blows my mind, that some are now preaching Christ out of selfish ambition, without sincerity, with the aim of stirring up trouble for Paul while he's in prison. Isn't that bonkers? The more I've been thinking about it this week, the more I've thought how bonkers it is, because it's so alien for us to now, in 2023, for someone to be, have the audacity to share the gospel in general. Our society would find that offensive. Evangelism and mission are words that are kind of not meant to use anymore. How dare you think you have found the truth? You're welcome to your truth, but don't think that I'm going to sign up to it. In fact, I find your conviction and your security and your faith quite offensive as well. How dare you share your beliefs with someone else? Surely if someone is interested, they can find out for themselves. They can find out rather than sharing what you believe. You could almost sum up the feeling in our society by the phrase, you do you. You do you. <laughs> I hear it so much. You do you. You're welcome to your faith. As long as you keep it private. As long as you do you in the privacy of your own home. You do you, and that's nice if you found faith, but I'll do me, and then we'll both be happy. So it's bonkers that there is this freedom and courage to share the gospel despite this threat of persecution. But the other thing that is crazy in this passage is that some are sharing the good news of Jesus out of selfish ambition. So maybe to profit or gain personally, or maybe they have a different emphasis in their communication and the life of what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. Maybe they could have been preaching Jesus to cause political conflict or even religious conflict between the Jews and the Gentiles. The imagery that most commentators use on this passage is that some may be preaching Jesus, the gospel, to create more friction for Paul. And the, the image that you can see there is almost like the chains that are binding Paul's ankles and his um, wrists that friction of this rough metal chains, the, the language this passage uses, that, would, that discomfort would be increased by people outside preaching the gospel. But Paul has a completely different perspective. He says in verse 18, what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way Christ is preached. And because Christ is being preached, Paul is rejoicing still in those chains still in prison. We saw last week that Paul had learned the art of gratitude, contentment and joyfulness independent of his physical circumstances. There is a key lesson for us to learn in this and it's a hard one but you might want to write it down and mull it this week. It's this, God is more concerned about your character than your comfort. God is more concerned by your character than your comfort, who you are becoming. The overall message we hear on social media and through advertising is that comfort is king. 
Our comfort should be our life ambition. Comfort is success. Comfort is having enough. Comfort is achievement. Comfort is king. But Paul shows us another way. Because the Apostle Paul's primary goal, his life ambition, was furthering the good news of Jesus. Because of that, he, as a model to us, is released from envy, from pride, from anger, from frustration when he sees someone else having success and sharing the good news of Jesus. So it got me thinking. Let's read verse 18 again. What does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. It made me think two things. What is the most important thing in your life? What is the most important thing in my life? What is my priority? What is my life goal, my life ambition? This is an unusual talk because I've only got two points, not three. So, second point, what does Paul mean when he says Christ is preached? So what is the most important thing in your life and what does Paul mean when he uses this phrase, Christ is preached? Now you might think, oh, it's obvious, Nathan. Well, is it that obvious? So, first part we're going to look at as quickly as we can and the second part is going to take a little bit longer and it probably could be a sermon series in itself. So I'm going to give you a high-level view and give you some pointers where to read about it some more. So the Apostle Paul, in chains because of the gospel, hears that the news that his friends are going for it, preaching Jesus, preaching Christ with an increased level of courage and fearlessness is what the passage says. But some others, and it's not exactly clear what their motives are, they're also spreading the, the gospel, this, this good news. Paul literally said it doesn't matter. Because the highest priority for Paul is that, the Christ, that Christ is preached. But what is our highest priority? What is the most important thing in your life? Let me help you think about this question. So, as a pastor of a church, I have some things that I'm invited to do which I really enjoy. And other things that I'm invited to do which I do not enjoy quite so much. I'm really not that good at formal events. Weddings and funeral are not my strengths um are when you have to stick rigidly to a script and not crack jokes especially funerals i find it really really difficult so this year we have been to five weddings well you've been to four i've been to five five weddings and i've spoken and taken the ceremony at two and did weddings are great because it's just lots of laughs and no one minds jokes and we've just been regular guests at two and i've spoken at two and we've been to another one and this is not me touting for business. Absolutely not. It's super stressful. And you have to wear horrible clothes that are really hot. And I think it was the hottest day of the year this year when we did. Anyway, weddings are huge celebrations. Lots of laughter, stories, fun, pictures and jokes. You get a little glimpse into the couple's life before they met each other. And then you hear some embarrassing stories and funny stories. There's lots to eat and drink, generally a bit later then you meant to, you eat finally after your stomach's telling you that you've missed a meal. There's vows and there's promises and there's families crying and hugging. It's great. But I've also been to two funerals this year. Taken one and been to another just this week. Now, obviously, funerals and weddings are incredibly different. But you wear the same clothes. Well, anyway, I do. So, um, but there... Oh, I hate wearing a suit. Anyway, there is something incredibly powerful about reflecting on someone's life once they have died. I don't want this to be too morbid, don't worry, it's not that long. You hear stories about their life and their family, funny moments, 
maybe their achievements, maybe their life history. You hear about their friendships or sadly sometimes their lack of friendships. I sat in a funeral this week and I pulled out my phone discreetly so that no one saw and I wrote this. In death you are revealed. Your priorities, friendships and what you classed as success. But Ruth had a much better phrase when we were discussing it while we were washing up. She said this, and I put it on the screen. The greatest reflection of how you lived is how you are remembered in death. Lead pasty, co-lead pasties. Isn't that true? The greatest reflection of how you live is how you are remembered in death. And that's why I wish she preached more. Boom. There it is. That's true. The greatest reflection of how you lived is how you are remembered in death. We heard some beautiful stories this week of someone, and many of you won't know who they are, but you knew that their priority was their relationship with their wife, their relationship with their family, their family's relationships with each other, and their relationships with Jesus. That was how he defined success in his life, those relationships. That was literally how he defined and explained success to his kids. Closeness between the family and closeness to Jesus. It was so powerful to hear that testimony. The Apostle Paul's definition of success was preaching Jesus. It didn't matter who or why they did it, as long as Jesus was preached. He was solely focused on this. It was what he was all about. So what are we solely focused on? What are we known for? What is the most important thing in your life? And what do you define as success? Those are enormous questions. One for to discuss in your small groups maybe. But it's worth thinking through because Paul's approach to life and his approach to death is intriguing because there is no fear whatsoever. He doesn't fear chains, he doesn't fear persecution, he doesn't fear prison, he doesn't even fear death. He just says later on in this chapter, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's challenging, isn't it? But what is, so that was my first bit, what is important to you? But what does Paul even mean when he says he's happy as long as Christ is preached? Earlier in the passage, he talks about this imprisonment having the knock-on effect that the gospel has been advanced. What does Paul understand by this phrase? What would Paul have expected to be communicated that reflected the gospel, this word that means good news in the preaching of Christ? I'm not going to ask you to do this, but you could. No, we're not going to time. I'm not going to put you on the spot. If I gave you five minutes to define what is the gospel, what is the good news to the person sitting next to you, what would you say? Where would you start and I think it's absolutely worth having a prepared answer to this question. Especially if you're a student at a university, those late night discussions when everyone's had a few beers and someone turns to you and says, why are you going to church tomorrow? <laughs> what do you actually believe? And you can say, ping, here's my amazing answer and I'm going to take you hungover to church tomorrow. You never know when someone you live with or work with might say, so can you tell me about your faith? Or what do you actually believe? How can, the best question ever, how do I become a Christian? How can I follow Jesus myself? Well, I'm going to look at how Paul described the gospel and how Jesus described the gospel, and then I'm going to give you some homework as well. 
1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 5, Paul says this, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. Verse 2, By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. Verse 3, What I received I passed on to you as of first importance. There's that. What is most important? This is the first importance in Paul's life, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to um, Peter and then to the twelve. Key phrase in this passage, according to the scriptures. Pete Hughes in his brilliant book, All Things New, says this, this simple phrase is Paul's way of saying that all of this happened to fulfill the story of God's engagement with his people and his world. Jesus dies, was buried, and rose again to fulfill not just Israel's story, but also the story of God on a mission to make all things new. Paul uses this phrase that means through the death, resurrection, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, but this story of history is fulfilled. So that's what Paul was saying. What did Jesus say? How did Jesus describe the gospel? Mark chapter 1 verse 14 it says this just after Paul uh, sorry just after John the baptizer was put in prison Jesus went into Galilee verse 14 Mark chapter 1 proclaiming the good news of God this isn't a religious phrase this is a political phrase announcing the news of something that has happened verse 15 the time has come the kingdom of God has come near repent and believe the good news now, I did a whole series on what is the simple gospel back earlier in the year. I'd recommend listening to it again, um, purely to unpack this phrase, the kingdom of God is near, because this is a massive theme in our church, in our movement as a vineyard, and I think in our discipleship. This is how Rich Viotis, author, speaker, and pastor of New Life Fellowship in Queens, defines the gospel, and I think this is one of the best def definitions i found. The gospel is the good news that God's kingdom has come near through Jesus, through his life, his death, and his resurrection, and his enthronement. The powers of Satan, sin, and death no longer have the last word. That's good, isn't it? You might want to write that one down. You can Google it. He tweeted it. The gospel is the good news that God's kingdom has come near through Jesus, the, through his life, not just his death, through his life, his death, and his resurrection, and enthronement. The powers of sin, Satan, and death no longer have the last word in your life and in this world. So let's draw this to a close. I know it's not really a satisfactory conclusion as we've kind of just scratched the surface but the gospel is about the kingdom of God. And I want to end with a challenge because we believe that the gospel of Jesus is the ultimate good news. We believe his life and his death and resurrection ushered in, inaugurated, initiated his kingdom on earth. And because of this good news, we can have new spiritual life free from the power, bondage and slavery of Satan, sin and death, all of which Jesus defeated on the cross. Because of his atoning sacrifice, our sins are forgiven. If we repent and respond to this good news, we are declared righteous and justified. Why do I say all of that? Because maybe our gospel is too small. 
maybe the gospel that we believe is too small. I couldn't help but think the deconstruction we're seeing in our society and our churches at the moment is not deconstructing faith. It's deconstructing a tiny gospel and filling it out. Anyway, that's not my notes. Um, Someone tried to tell me that effectively the gospel was that just God just loves everyone. And that's not untrue, but it's absolutely not the whole truth. Maybe you think the gospel is about praying a prayer so that you can go to heaven when you die. It's not untrue, but it's definitely not the whole truth. It's so important to wrestle with what you understand by the concept of the good news of Jesus, the gospel of Christ Jesus. Why? Because the gospel you accept will decide what you are discipled towards. Another way to put it would be this. The gospel you live in is the gospel you live out. If the gospel you live in is a kind of nice, furry, well-being-centered spirituality, kind of like mindfulness that's biblical-based, that's not the whole gospel. Creating with God, um, connecting with God in nature is not the whole gospel. The gospel that Jesus proclaims is that his kingdom of peace, justice, mercy, reconciliation, and freedom has come near through his life, his death, and his resurrection. And that if we put our active faith in him, we participate in advancing the hope and good news of this kingdom. Maybe this morning is an invitation to invite to be invited into the fullness of the kingdom of God. It's near, it's at hand, it's available. 